Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This time around, we're going to do an archive show. This one was first broadcast as a Boomer Boulevard show, August 17th, 2015. Hope you enjoy. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. question for you. What's green and fuzzy? And if it falls from a tree and lands on you, it will probably kill you. You don't know. A pool table. (laughs) You don't get it? A A pool table. No, of course they don't, Chester. That that's that's why it's funny. Okay. Hey everybody, Bob Bro back live with you. Glad to be back with you. We are all moved and uh, ready to start doing some shows again. And we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. We've got a great lineup this week. We have a yours truly Johnny Dollar. We're going to follow that up by a Fibber McGee and Molly on our comedy corner. And of course, we're going to end up on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas with an episode of Gunsmoke great lineup. It's great to be back with you, and we're going to get started in just a minute. to be back with you folks. This is the first time I've actually talked to you live for about a month and a half since before um, we closed on our house. You probably heard the sad story. Our closing was put off 30 days. 30 days. So for 30 days we were basically in limbo. It's a long 
story. It had to do with the, the federally backed loan, and our buyer had failed to do something that he needed to do to qualify for the loan. It was a simple thing, but the lender didn't catch it until the last minute. So then we had the choice. We could either back out of the deal, the terms of the contract had not been met, or we could wait 30 days. Well, we chose to wait the 30 days. So during that time, we lived in an, just almost an empty house. We had a mattress on the floor, a couple chairs, a TV, a table with our computers. And that was about it. We borrowed a dorm-sized refrigerator because we had sold our refrigerator. So I was unable to do the show during that period of time. And then we finally did close on the house on July 31st. So now we're moved in. Simultaneously, though, a bad thing happened to my websites. I had several websites, but the two that most of you know about were the oldtimeradioshow.com and also my Boomer Boulevard site. Well, my hosting company, the company that uh, keeps me on the web, was backing them up and somehow destroyed all the files. So they're gone. If you go into either one of those websites now, you'll, you'll basically get nothing. I think you'll get an error message or something. I lost both sites, lost everything on them. Now, the good news is on the Old Time Radio Show site, I had it, I have copies of all of my original shows, and I even have those backed up on the cloud. So I still own the website. I can go in and recreate it and upload all those shows, but that's a very time and labor intensive project, and I will get it done, but it's going to just take some time. Things are just getting back to normal for us now, and there's been a few health issues uh, with my wife and whatnot, but every, everything's fine. And I thank you for all the nice emails I've gotten from folks asking where the heck I've been. <laughs> well, I'm here, and we're okay, and we're very, very happy in our new apartment. This is what we wanted. We wanted to downsize from a big four-bedroom house where just the two of us lived on three and a half acres of land that just took so much work, and now we we don't have all of those pressures, and we... You know, we, the money from the sale of the house is in the bank, so we're we're okay. And if we decide later on we want to get a small house or a condo or something, we can do that. But for now, we're exactly where we want to be, and I thank you for your concern. But a lot of people have asked me, what happened to our website? That's what happened. I'll get it back up. It's just going to take some time. I'll keep you advised. Anyway, it's great to be back with you. We're going to start things off tonight with a little Radio Noir. things off tonight, folks, with yours truly, Johnny Dollar. That's our radio noir music, but eh, Johnny Dollar wasn't exactly the hard-boiled detective. Although originally, that's the way the show was conceived. 
Johnny Dollar uh, in the original scripts was a tough, uh, wise-cracking detective who used to toss silver dollars to waiters and bellhops. The original role was uh, to be played by Dick Powell, who always is depicted as this hard-boiled guy, and Dick Powell just never struck me that way. For one, he was very short, or so was Edward G. Robinson. But Dick Powell just always struck me more as the song and dance man, uh, June Allison's husband. Never struck me as a hard-boiled detective. But anyway, he starred in the audition show, and that was recorded way back in 1948. But he didn't do the, uh, the series because he had other projects. So the role went to Charles Russell. It was originally titled Yours Truly, Lloyd London although the name of the show and the lead character were changed before the audition was originally recorded back in 1948. The first three actors to play Johnny Dollar, Charles Russell, then later Edmund O'Brien, who I thought was pretty good in the role, and then eventually John Lund, uh, really didn't distinguish Johnny as being much different from any other detective of the genre. The series, though, ended in September of 1954, but a year later, CBS revived Years Truly John Dollar with a brand new leading man. They also had a new director and a new format. The program changed from a 30-minute, one-episode-a-week show to a 15-minute, five-nights-a-week serial. And it was produced and directed by radio veteran Jack Johnston. The new Johnny Dollar, and the one most of us have come to know and love, is the Johnny Dollar was Bob Bailey. He had just come off another uh, network detective series, Let George Do It, which is not one of my favorite shows. With a new lead and 75 minutes of airtime each week, it became possible to develop storylines with more detail and more characters. We have tonight a 30-minute episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, which was originally aired on the 20th of December in 1959, this one's pretty good. It's entitled The Red Mystery Matter, and it features Bob Bailey, Barney Phillips, and also Alan Reed and Lawrence Dopkin. So here we go from 1959, yours truly, Johnny Dollar and The Red Mystery Matter. Johnny Dollar. Johnny, you better come flying out here just about as fast as you can. Ah, uh, who's that? Johnny. This is Red. Yeah, Red who? Well, you know, your favorite fishing guide. Red Barrett? That's right. Lake Mojave Resort out in Arizona? Yes, sir. Well, Red, you old scalawag, how are you, and how's the fishing? Just great. That is, if you know where the good holes are. And believe me, you do. Now, that's really fact, Johnny, I really do. I guess I'm the best fishing guide this country ever saw. Yeah, and I suppose you think it's time I made another trip out there and tangle with some of those beautiful lunker bass. Well, now, Johnny... Uh, it's no good, Red. I, I just can't do it. Now, you listen... The way the work is piled up on me, I'm just about going crazy. I've been trying to get away for some kind of a vacation for weeks now, but I just can't do it. Sounds to me like you need it, too. Yeah, it's been a tough year, no let-up at all. Pat McCracken over at Universal Adjustment Bureau, half a dozen of my other contacts. They've been begging me to take some time off, but I, I just can't, Red. I'm not on a regular payroll. I'm a freelance, so I have to take on every assignment that's handed me, whether I like it or not. Look, you mentioned Mr. No use, Red. So don't make me feel any worse by talking about it. Me? That was your idea. Huh? Did I say anything about fishing until you did? 
Oh, now, wait. Do you mean there's some insurance matter I ought to look into out there? It was this Pat McCracken you mentioned that said I better call you. Oh, great. And he's the one who's been after me to take a rest. So, what's happened out there? Uh, that's the thing. It ain't what has, but what's gonna happen. Yeah? Like what? Come on, get to the point, Red. Well, Johnny, when it does happen, well, it's gonna be pretty tragic for Lake Mojave Resort. You mean somebody's trying to wreck the place? Something like that? Much worse, Johnny. Much worse. Well, what is it? Well, I just don't think I ought to tell you over the phone. But, Red, unless I know... And if somebody was to hear me talking to you this way... Red, look. And anyhow, you'll find out soon enough when you get here, Johnny. And you won't like it. No, sir. Red, quit stalling, will you? Of course, if you just want to sit around up there in Hartford and let a terrible thing like this happen without even raising a finger... Well, I just can't believe you'd do that. Look, will you stop beating around the bush and... Red? Red! I can't tell you over the phone. It's too awful. Now listen, you old goat. But Johnny, they say this airplane leaves New York City just about 12 o'clock noon. So what? So it'll get you in Las Vegas about 9.45 tonight. Okay? What do you mean, okay? I mean, just you be sure and be on it. And I know you will. Oh, now look, I can't... Goodbye, Johnny. Red! Oh, if that crazy old coot thinks I'm going to fly all the way out there just because he... And yet, if he was serious... CBS Radio brings you Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, act one of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Universal Adjustment Bureau, Hartford, Connecticut. Attention, Mr. Pat McCracken. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Red Mystery Matter. That crazy phone call from Red Barrett. I know that wild old character pretty well. I'm fully aware of his faculty for stretching the truth, making a couple of mountains out of a molehill or two. And once or twice before, I'd wound up making the trip across the country just to wet a fishing line with him. And yet, those other times I'd fallen for his gag, I'd run headlong into serious insurance matters. Trouble with a capital T. And if he really meant what he said about something terrible impending at Lake Mojave Resort, well, there was one way to find out. Expense account item one, $153, plane fare, Hartford to New York to Las Vegas, Nevada. The awesome beauty of the clear night sky over the desert, with its billions of stars twinkling in the black sky above, is something I'll never tire of. The stars seem close enough to reach out and touch them. As the plane hit the glide path down to the landing strip at the south end of Las Vegas, the myriad many-colored lights of the city winked and sparkled like the lights on a gigantic Christmas tree. Yeah, from the air, Las Vegas, the fabulous city of chance, is just plain beautiful. I'd like to have stuck around Vegas for a while and tried my hand at some of the casinos and clubs along the gambler's alley they call the strip, but I had other things to do. So, 
Item two was 50 bucks deposit on a rental car. And within minutes after the plane landed, I was heading south and east across the desert, down toward Davis Dam, down to Lake Mojave Resort. The desert, mile after mile of nothing but sand and sagebrush and Joshua trees, of tumbleweed and cactus, of high plateaus and broad windswept mesas. Here and there, the skeleton of some animal was perished in the remorseless, terrible summer sun. And then suddenly in the middle of it, the life-giving waters of Lake Mojave. At the south end of the lake, just above Davis Dam, is the resort, with its clean, comfortable motel, a good restaurant, tackle shop, and dock. Everything to warm the heart of a fisherman. Yeah, and in the bright light of the moon, I could see the lake itself, calm as a mill pond. That meant that unlike the cold and snow I'd left back east, here it was warm and perfect weather for fishing. It took a bit of self-control to keep from driving right on down to the dock. Instead, I circled the driveway to the office. As I pulled up to a stop, in spite of the hour, someone came out to greet me. It was my old friend Buster Favor, General Factotum at the resort. Yes, sir? Can I help you? Yeah, Buster. I think you can. What? Why, it's Johnny Dollar. Yeah, no, no, Hiya, Buster. Johnny, it's a miracle. I don't see why. When I get word there's trouble around here. Oh, then you know, huh? Buster, I only know that something is about to... Even the police haven't had a chance to get over here yet. The police? Johnny, I sure hope he's all right that you can find him. Yeah, find who? Why, Red. Red Barrett? You mean you didn't know? Buster, what's happened to him? Johnny, Red has... Well, he's disappeared. Oh. And I could be awfully wrong, but from the looks of things, Johnny... Wait a minute. You think somebody could have murdered him? Come on take you over to his room. You can see for yourself. Well, look, Red phoned me in Hartford, Buster. He told you me think that... think he had some premonition that something was going to happen to him? Well, that's just it. He didn't seem worried about himself. All he would say well, was... Well, it sure looks like he should have been worried, Johnny. Here now. Holy. Yeah. The room, a housekeeping unit, was a shambles. Clothing pulled out of the drawers and closet as though somebody had ransacked the place looking for something. That stuff's so part of the uniform as he was wearing while he was working, Johnny. How much personal clothing stuff he had, I don't exactly know. So, if anything... The furniture, though none of it was actually broken, was overturned and cluttering up the floor. On the electric range in the kitchenette were the pots and pans he'd apparently used to cook his dinner. Some fish bones lay on a plate on the table. Probably one of the bass he caught this afternoon. Poor old fellow went out fishing as usual, not realizing what was going to happen to him after he came back here and had his supper. Now, wait. Wait a minute, Buster. Yeah, Johnny? That he left here in a hurry is pretty obvious. Or his body was hauled out of here. But I still don't see anything to indicate he was murdered or even badly hurt. Well, look here, then. Look, Buster, you know as well as I do how unpredictable Red is. Well, I know, Always but... getting restless, always talking about going somewhere else, doing something else. I know, Johnny, Look, he's but... told me a dozen times about a gold mine. He hoped to go to back there and work someday, 50 or 60 miles north of here, up near Lake Mead. He's told me about offers to work as a guide for other fishing spots. Johnny, So what makes you think he didn't just pack up and leave for some other place, some other job? Without letting us know... And leaving things this way? Red? Sure, sure he would. So unless you can show me some good... Oh. Yeah, Johnny. It's blood there on the floor. I'm sure of it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's blood all right. It... It still hasn't even dried either. Yeah, I see. 
All right. When did you find he was missing? When Ham Pratt... Well, you remember Ham. The manager of this place, sure. Well, after supper, Ham came over here to talk to him, and, well, this is what he found. Do you know of any enemies he may have had? Red? Oh, no, sir. Of course, all of us used to get out of patience with him now and then. Some of the crazy things he'd do, the wild stories he'd tell. But uh, there wasn't one of us didn't love the crusty old coot. Same thing applied to everybody else who knew him. Then why? Why would anybody want to do him in? I don't know. I can't figure it out. But it sure looks like somebody did, Johnny. You can see the evidence yourself. Yeah, maybe. What do you mean by that? Red's phone call that brought me out here. If he'd thought that he himself was in danger, don't you think he would have said so? Yeah, I guess Red would have built it up, too. Would have made it sound real dramatic. Sure he would, sure he would. But instead he told me something tragic was going to happen to the resort. Like what, Buster? Like nothing I can possibly think of. But now, Johnny, there's blood on the floor. Yeah. Hey, did Red have a car? Yeah. Where is it? It's gone, Johnny. Whoever did, well, did whatever they did to him must have used it to carry away his body. The poor old... Buster, I've just got a lead on it. Oh, Ham, come in. You see, I phoned everybody up and down the lake to look out for... Johnny! Ham, how are you? Buster's told you about Red? Yeah, and in spite of this so-called evidence around here, I still Johnny don't... Johnny simply doesn't believe that Red was murdered. But there's blood on the floor the way things were left around. Or, Johnny, have you some reason for thinking he wasn't? First, I want some definite reason why he was. But look, Johnny... If you want the truth, I think you've both gone overboard about this. Are you kidding? Give me a reason. A reason for killing him, for anybody killing him. Just one good reason. Well, now, Johnny... Johnny, there's blood on the floor. Yeah. Yeah, this. Hmm. What, uh... What is it, Johnny? Johnny? You, uh... Haven't called in the police yet? Oh, I was just about to when you arrived. Don't you think I'd better call them then right away? Well, yeah, Johnny, why don't you do that? No. No? I've done something better, Johnny. I spread the word up and down the lake, all the way up the Colorado River by telephone. And listen, it's, it's paid off. And that's what I came in here to tell you about. Well? I just got word that a car, same description as Red Barrett's, that it was seen pulling off Highway 93 about 33 miles this side of Boulder City. Oops. What? What, Johnny? You want me to find poor old Red, huh? Well, of course, if the poor old fella's still alive. Then maybe I will. And when I do, I have a sneaking suspicion I may have a score to settle with you two. Now, just a minute, Johnny. If you mean to imply that either of us did him... I didn't say that. And, Johnny, what do you mean? You don't know, Buster? Well, if you think you can find Red and if I can be of any help to you... No, no, no. That's exactly what I don't want. Well, now, Johnny... Just let me work out this little mystery myself. Well, of course. No help, no interference from either of you. Johnny, this isn't like you. I don't understand. You don't, huh? I swear it. Yeah? We'll see. Now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Red Mystery Matter. Suddenly, things had begun to add up. Yeah, from right in the beginning, when Red had mentioned over the phone that he'd talked with Pat McCracken at Universal Adjustment Bureau. Had Red called Pat, or vice versa? 
And there was the lamp there in Red's room, apparently knocked to the floor in a struggle. But not even the bulb was broken. The clothes that were left, only the uniforms he'd worn while at work. Was that supposed to mean that the only personal things he had were those he was wearing when he disappeared? Hardly. Then there was that spot of blood on the floor. A fish scale, a single scale in the middle of it. I had no microscope to examine that blood, probably wouldn't have known how to use it anyway. But I had a sneaking suspicion there was something very, very... Yeah. And knowing Red and Ham and Buster and Pat McCracken pretty well. Okay. The first thing I did after Ham and Buster left me alone was to look over the room again. And yes, one parcel of equipment that should have been there was conspicuously absent. I went down to the boat dock and found the old Arkansas traveler that Red had always used to fish in. Uh-huh. It was empty. Absolutely empty of the stuff I knew he always kept in it. Johnny? Wow. What are you doing up and around this time of night, Ham? Oh, just sort of checking up on things. Yeah? Or checking up on me. <laughs> oh, now, Johnny. Hey, you uh, hoping to find some lead on Red there and his boat? I found exactly what I expected, Ham. Nothing. I don't understand. Don't you? Johnny, what goes with you? You've certainly been acting kind of feisty this trip. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Now, if you feel you have some lead on Red on, on what may have happened to him, well... Yeah. Yeah, I think I have. And you helped to give it to me. I did. But there's no point in following it up for a morning. What, uh, what is the lead? No help, no interference, remember... Okay, Johnny, whatever you say. Um, no use doing anything till morning, eh? That's right. Then you, uh, uh, well... Uh, well, what? Oh, I was just thinking. Remember a couple of moonlight nights like this when you were here before, how you and I took the workboat a couple of fishing rods, how we plugged those deep coves just above the dam? yeah. Yeah, we took some nice fish out of there, didn't we? Yeah. I'm going to be blunt with you, Johnny. You aren't yourself. You're a bundle of nerves. Been working too hard. <sighs> yeah, much too hard. Well, one great cure for that. Why don't we go out there and pick us up a couple of nice bass? Okay. Why not? Unless, of course, you feel you ought to do something more about finding Ray. I told you. No more until morning. I also told you I... Oh, I... I'm sorry, Ham. Let's go fishing. Sure, Johnny. I understand. Yeah, I... I guess you do. Maybe I had been a little feisty, as Ham had put it. And he was right about the fishing out there in the smooth black water with the bright moonlight overhead. When those two six-pounders hit my lure and I carefully played them into the boat... Believe me, they did more to bring me back to normal than anything else in the world could have. That night, for the first time in weeks, I slept like a baby. Then, first thing in the morning, well, the whole thing really wasn't too hard to figure out. Red was a fisherman every day of his life. But I'd found no sign of his tackle there in the room, or in the boat he'd always used. In other words, no matter how or why he'd left, he himself must have taken those things with him. Also his personal clothes and stuff but naturally not the uniforms that belonged to the resort. The blood on the floor from one of the baths he'd had for dinner, carefully put there after he turned the room inside out. As for his whereabouts, 
Ham had given me the clue when he told me Red's car had been seen at the highway turnoff 33 miles south of Boulder City. That turnoff led to only one place, a fishing camp at the lower end of Lake Mead, known as Temple Bar. And when I got there, sure enough, waiting for me in his outboard, beside the dock, Red Barrett. All ready for you, Johnny. Why, Red, you rascal. Got an extra rod and reel and a bucket of live bait. You and me will go out there and slay him. Get in, Johnny. Get in. <laughs> sure, Red, why not? Ah, it's a boy. Here we go. Yeah, I just knew a smart man like you could track me down. Hey, you're working here now, huh? Well, I got kind of restless and thought maybe I'd make a change. And as long as Ham Pratt was willing... Then Ham was in on this plot to get me out here. Why, sure he was. And the terrible things to happen at Lake Mojave? Why, of course, Johnny. They've lost me, haven't they? <laughs> ah, you old son of a gun. Hey, Buster in on it, too? No, Ham's probably telling him about it right now. Probably showing him the letter he got from Mr. McCracken. McCracken? Pat McCracken? Yeah. Now, maybe you'd better read this one that he wrote to me. Uh, first part's just the usual howdy-do's, but uh, uh, here. And Red, I'm convinced a man can take only so much, even Johnny Dollar. And I'm afraid that unless he gets some rest and relaxation, he'll crack up one of these days. So if you and Ham Pratt can somehow contrive to get him out there for some of that fishing he loves so much, go to it. If he catches on, if he starts worrying about the expense, tell him it's on the house. Tell him... <laughs> Tell him Merry Christmas. Sincerely yours. Well, God bless Pat McCracken. As for you, Red, you old reprobate. Johnny, there's a hole over near the jip beds where there's an old ten-pounder laying under a rock. Just wait for you and me. Brother, let's go. man once said that the time a man spends in fishing is never deducted from his lifespan. And you know something? I, for one, am convinced that he was right. So, well, Merry Christmas to you all, too. All of you. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a man, a girl, and a gangster. That's right. They add up to trouble for me. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey originates in Hollywood and is written, produced, and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in our cast were Forrest Lewis, Barney Phillips, Alan Reed Sr., and Lawrence Dobkin. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Dan Coverly speaking. Now stay tuned for Suspense, which follows next on the CBS Radio Network. If you heard that, uh, that episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, the first time it was broadcast, 
Then you were listening to the radio on Sunday, December 20th, in 1959. You probably heard that same night on the news that nine people were killed and 21 were injured near Tucson, Arizona, when a cattle truck struck a Greyhound bus. The force of the impact was so great that several calves were hurled into the bus. The very next day, the Shah of Iran was married to uh, his 21-year-old student wife, Farah Deba. Deba? I don't remember how she pronounced her name. I remember pictures of her years later when he was deposed. Uh, Two days later, Chuck Berry was arrested in St. Louis shortly after midnight. He had completed a concert at his club bandstand nightclub and was charged with violating the Mann Act. Barry was convicted and was served time in jail until 1961. I did not remember that. Uh, a couple other things happened somewhat noteworthy about that time. Nelson Rockefeller announced that he would not seek the Republican Party nomination for 1960. Johnny Unitas led the Baltimore Colts to a 31-16 win over the New York Giants to win the NFL championship. That was on December 27th. And uh, there was another interesting football thing here. Where was it? Oh, here it is. Tom Landry, who had been the defensive coach for the New York Giants, was signed as the new coach of the Dallas Rangers who were seeking admission as the NFL's 13th team. Landry then coached the renamed Dallas Cowboys for 29 seasons. So he joined the Dallas Rangers, later to become the Dallas Cowboys, on December 28th, just a week after that episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. By the way, that year had some really good music. And here is an artist that had the number two song of 1959. Now, this isn't it. This is one of my favorites by him. We'll play the uh, number two song of all of 1959 a little later in the show. But here is Mr. Bobby Darren. Stands on golden sand and watches the ships that go sailing somewhere beyond the sea. She's there watching for me. If I could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms. See and never 
Sea by Bobby Darren. I always was a big Bobby Darren fan. I loved him. Uh, I, I liked him as an actor, and I liked him as a singer. And I remember one time, um, my sister had just gotten engaged to her husband Mac, who she is still married to. Some, gosh, close to fifty years later. And uh, her parent, our Mac's parents, lived in Glendale in Southern California, and we had gone up to have dinner with them. Our family had gone up to have dinner with uh, Mac's uh, family. And I drove separately for some reason. I don't remember what the reason was. I was 17 or 18 at the time, 19 maybe. And I had um, left, you know, well after dinner. My folks were staying. I think they were going someplace with, uh, with the carpenters. At any rate, I, I drove down, and it, it, Glendale is right near Hollywood, and so I drove into Hollywood, and there was a movie premiere that night that I had read about at the Vogue Theater, which I don't even think is there anymore. It was Woman Times Seven was the name of the movie, and it uh, starred Shirley MacLaine, and I think it was seven different short stories, each about a character played by Shirley MacLaine. You'll probably see it on Turner Classic Movies some night. But I remember that night uh, I saw Bobby Darren and he arrived at the premiere with Claudia Cardinelli. And they were together that night. And um, there were several other stars there too that night. I remember seeing Ernest Borgnine and several others. But I remember uh, everybody, it wasn't a big crowd, but at those pull the limousines up and they'd get out. This theater didn't have the big walkway like the Chinese theater or the Egyptian theater did in Hollywood. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, I saw Bobby Darren, uh, Claudia Cardinelli, saw Ernest Borgnine, several other celebrities that night. Can't remember who all they were, but I always, always loved Bobby Darren. Here's a we'll play some more Bobby Darren coming up. Here's a song that was the um, number seven song from all of 1959, and this song. Is one of my favorites. It's one of those that's that fit in the category of. I actually bought this song, but didn't want to tell anybody about it because uh, I would have been embarrassed. Even even in elementary school. Let's see, in fifty fifty. No, I, I guess I was in junior high school in fifty nine. 
But this is a song called The Three Bells by the Browns. There's a village hidden deep in the valley Among the pine trees half forlorn And there on a sunny morning Little Jimmy Brown was born All the chapel bells were ringing In the little valley town And the song that they were singing Was for baby Jimmy Brown Then the little congregation Prayed for guidance from above Lead us not into temptation Bless this hour of meditation Guide him with eternal love There's a village Hidden deep in the valley Beneath the mountains high above And there, twenty years thereafter Jimmy was to meet his love All the chapel bells were ringing T'was a great day in his life Cause the songs that they were singing Was for Jimmy and his wife Then the little congregation Prayed for guidance from above Lead us not into temptation Bless, O Lord, this celebration May their lives be filled with love From the village Hidden deep in the valley One rainy morning dark and gray A soul winged its way to heaven Jimmy Brown had passed away Boom, 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 boom Just a lonely bell was ringing In the little valley town T'was farewell that it was singing To our good old Jimmy Brown And the little congregation Prayed for guidance from above us not into temptation May his soul find the salvation Of thy great eternal love That was the Browns. Can you imagine that was the seventh biggest tune of 1959? Times have changed, haven't they? I don't think that one was covered by Snoop Dogg. I, I, I don't think so, but... Uh, Anyway, I remember that song. I love that song. I bought that song. And uh, like I said, I was embarrassed to tell my friends because, I mean, you know, a guy just didn't listen to the story of Jimmy Brown and the three phases of his life. But big, big hit. That was one of those crossover hits, too, that was uh, the Browns were actually a, a country country group. But there was a lot of countries that had pop uh, pop hits in 1959. Here's one more song from 1959 that kind of goes on the other side a little bit. It shows that there was sort of a dark side in 59. This is Mr. Lloyd Price and Stagger Lee. The night was clear and the moon was yellow and the leaves came. 
Lloyd Price, who is still with us, by the way. He was born in 1933 down in Louisiana, Kenner, Louisiana, in the New Orleans area. area. And so what does that make him now? And he's in his 80s. Uh, very talented singer. He, he was discovered by uh, a record producer down there when he produced a song entitled Lottie Miss Claudie. I think we played that in the past. Great song. I, I remember it was covered later by the Beatles, uh, among others. It, it's been covered by a number of, of artists. But he was, his career was just getting started when he got drafted. Remember the draft, everybody? Yeah. Even, even during, well, that was during the Korean War. I think he, he went over and served in Korea. But when he came back, he found that uh, his place at the head of the rhythm and blues chart had been replaced, that he had been replaced by Little Richard. So he sort of um, recreated himself and really emphasized the, what came to become the, known as the New Orleans sound. Fats Domino and he and a number of others. And then he started producing some really big hits. He had Stagger Lee, Personality, I'm Going to Get Married. They were all top uh, at the top of the chart. He appeared on the Dick Clark Show, but Dick Clark insisted that the violent content, content of this song be toned down for American Bandstand. But it was the violent version that really became known to the world over, and that was the seventh largest song of 1959. All right, time now for our Comedy Corner. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, come tonight. <laughs> I love Fibber McGee and Molly, and we don't play nearly enough of it on this show. The reason why, I think I've explained before, most of the good episodes of Fibber McGee and Molly go back into the mid-40s, which kind of predates the the, uh, the time that I'm trying to highlight on Boomer Boulevard, the time of, from uh, the very oh mid-50s, early 50s, into the 60s, early 60s. Uh, those shows that we remember, yet I do remember Fibber McGee and Molly. Uh, I've explained that before. I remember when they were on Monitor. I remember driving in the car and hearing them um, uh, on the radio with my parents when I was just a little kid. When you go back and listen to these shows now, the recordings, you, you realize that they weren't nearly as, as good then. They'd, are, they'd lost their studio audience, among other things, as they were in the early, early shows. So... Uh, we're not going to avoid any more Fibber, McGee, and Molly. We'll just go back to 1944, 45, 46, right in there, and get some of the really cream of the crop shows. And this is a good example tonight. This episode originally was broadcast on May the 9th in 1944, and it's entitled Alice Darling's New Boyfriend. <laughs> the Johnson Wax Program with Fibber, McGee, and Molly.
makers of Johnson's Wax for Home and Industry present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. Here's a question that's going to sound funny to you, coming from me. Have you ever been dissatisfied with Johnson's self-polishing glow coat? Yes, that's just what I mean, dissatisfied. Have you ever bought a supply of Johnson's glow coat that didn't do the good job on your linoleum that you expected it to do? Now, the reason I ask you this question is this. We receive hundreds of voluntary letters from women who say glow coat is wonderful. Well, we're deeply grateful for those letters, but we sometimes wonder if we really are that good. It's only human to make mistakes, and during this critical war period, it has been a little more difficult to control materials and containers. So, I'd just like to say this. If you've had any experience with Johnson's self-polishing glow coat that has not been entirely satisfactory, we'd like to hear about it. We'll gladly replace any package that did not give you satisfactory service. You can send your letter direct to S.C. Johnson & Son, Racine, Wisconsin, or Brantford, Canada. We always want you to be happy with every purchase you make of Glow Coat or any other Johnson product. The way some people are acting at 79 Wistful Vista, you'd think the three most important dates in American history were 1492, 1776, and the one Alice Darling has with her new boyfriend tonight. As we meet, Fibber McGee and Molly. Would it be uh, too much to ask, dearie, for you to slip into a clean shirt and put your shoes on? Those carpet slippers look pretty disreputable. Why, who's coming? Alice's boyfriend, and you look awful. Hmm? Your shirt is must, there's cigar ashes on your vest, and altogether you look like a picnic tablecloth on the way home. <laughs> oh, Alice's boyfriend, Alice's boyfriend. Let's not get our teeth in an uproar just because that kid has snared a patsy for a hunk of rug cutting. <laughs> I've just got one more word to do on this crossword puzzle, and I'll have it. Where are your stuff? 32 vertical. Let's see, an eight-letter word meaning gubernatorial executive. Oh, is that what that is? Oh, that's gubernatorial. Yeah. Why, that's simple. Don't you know what gubernatorial means? Well, roughly, a goober is a peanut. (laughs) An executive means to execute somebody. So it's an eight-letter word meaning somebody who kills a lot of peanuts. Oh, I know, I know. Baseball fan. Oh, no, no. Too many letters. Look, dearie, the word is governor. Hmm? A governor is a gubernatorial executive. Oh, that can't be right. Governor starts with G. This word has got to start with a J on account of 56 horizontal. Well, what's 56 horizontal? That's a seven-letter word meaning real. I got that down as genuine. Genuine, my pet, starts with G and not J. It can't start with G. That throws the entire puzzle off. See, it's got to be J because 19 vertical is a five-letter word meaning a flat-bottom boat. B-A-R-J-E, barge. 
<laughs> I know, but barge is not spelt with a J. Doggone it, now you spoil the whole puzzle. And I had it all done but one word. Okay, okay, okay. Shucks. What was it you wanted me to do? <laughs> Run upstairs and brush up a little. We don't want Alice's boyfriend to think... Who's that? I'm afraid it's Alice's boyfriend. And you looking like an unmade bed. Oh, gee whiz, can I help us? Oh, Yes, dear. That's Bert. Will you let him in, please? Don't worry, Alice. We'll entertain him until you get your face on. Well, uh, if you'll just let him in, you won't have to entertain him. I'll be right down. Smooth down your colic and straighten your tie, dearie. Here comes romance. Um, I, uh... Is this where Alice... Uh, I mean, does the residence... Of, is the house where... Uh, Are you Bert? I think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm Bert. Uh, come right in, Bert. Alice will be down in just a minute. We're Mr. and Mrs. McGee, and Alice is expecting you. Oh, thank you. Relax, bud. Unbend. <laughs> just between us males, Alice has been ready since 3.30 this afternoon, but you know how women are. they got to put on the old act, you know. They'll keep you waiting if they have to go hide in the phone booth. <laughs> That's ridiculous, McGee. Alice just came home from the airplane plant a while ago. Come in and sit down, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Bert Taylor. Just call me Bert. Alice has often mentioned you both. She has, eh? What does she say about us, Bert? Oh, she says you, uh... Well, you're the type that... Well, if you'd only... Well, I don't remember exactly, but it was something. <laughs> well, that's a fairly safe summary of the conversation. Oh, here's Alice. Oh, doesn't she look nice? Oh, gee. Hi, Al. Hi, Bert. Hey, you do look pretty snappy, Alice. Well, if Mr. and Mrs. McGee will excuse us, I think we can... Certainly. Be... Run along and have fun. Oh, don't rush away, kids. <laughs> We're not putting us out a bit. Sit down a minute and relax. Looks like a rainy night anyway. Might as well sit here by the fire where there's no cover charge. Ever play four-handed dominoes? Uh, no, I... Uh, Bert and I are going someplace to dance, Mr. McGee. Why, what's the matter with right here? My gosh, roll up the carpets and turn on the radio. <laughs> Everything for free. Molly and I might knock off a round or two ourselves, huh? Include me out, dearie. Huh? Until I started going to dances with you, I never knew that shindig was two words. <laughs> I thought maybe Alice and I'd go downtown and maybe go to a nightclub. <laughs> Gee, you look nice in girls' clothes, Alice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Bert. What does he mean, girls' clothes? Well, uh, Bert's never seen me in anything but my coveralls at the airplane plant, Mr. McGee. I think they make girls look so horribly masculine. Oh, potash. <laughs> You're as feminine as a lost glove. Days, it's getting stormy. Oh, oh, we don't care, do we, Alice? Come on, let's... Oh, I love rainy nights myself. Let's go, Bert, and we'll... Hey, you, you can't go out in this. Catch your death of cold between here and the curb. Bert, you ought to have more sense than drag a fragile kid like Alice out into weather like this. Well, it, it did sound sort of like a thunderburst. A hmm? uh, cloud storm. Hmm? Oh, gee, I didn't realize... Oh, Bert, I... I don't mind a bit. Come on, it'll be fun. We'll just dash out to your car and Oh, then yeah, we... but, uh... Well, I, I didn't bring my car because... Well, I, I just got enough gas to get me to work and back. Oh, what do we care? Let's take a cab. A cab? Did you ever try to get a taxi in this town on a clear night? Well, divide that by four million, and that's your chances of getting one in the rain. Come on, hang up your coats and spend the evening right here. We'd love to have you stay. You know that. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Save you a lot of dough, too. You know about that 30% federal flip in the hot spots, don't you? You heard about that, didn't you, Charlie? 
His name is Bert, Mr. McGee. I thought it was Charlie. You're always talking about... McGee! (laughs) McGee, the boy's name is Bert, and he's the one Alice is always talking about. No, Molly, she's always talking about... Well, maybe we better stay in the... Billy Mills and the orchestra play Poinciana. chair, Alice? Don't you want to sit here on the Davenport with me and Bert and Molly? No, thanks. I like this straight chair. It keeps me awake. Well, it's too bad the rain spoils your evening, Alice. Yeah. What do you mean, spoiled it? They're having a swell time. We've been through the photograph albums twice. I told Bert all about how I fought in the last war and showed him a high school annual. You haven't showed Bert how you can take off your vest without removing your coat, Mr. McGee. (laughs) I'm saving that, Alice, in case the party got dull. In that case, you should have showed us an hour ago, McGee. I'll say so. (laughs) Why don't we run along upstairs, McGee? We'd both like to read in bed, and let's leave Alice and Bert to themselves. Oh, Mrs. McGee, you're so thoughtful. Yeah, sure are. Ah, forget it, kids. I've seen the time when I'd love to have somebody like me around to entertain me, too. (laughs) Well, what do we do, kids? How about a game of cards? Who plays flinch? Uh, (laughs) Bert and I like to play records on the phonograph, but maybe it would bore you and Mrs. McGee unless you were upstairs where you couldn't hear them or something. Yeah. Let's play some records. Ah, you don't want to listen to records. My gosh, you've heard all that classical stuff a hundred times. How about me showing you some car tricks? I got a swell car trick, but I got to have a rubber band. Anybody got a rubber band? 
Nobody got a rubber band, huh? <laughs> I suppose that... Come in. Oh, for goodness sakes, Mr. Wellington, what are you doing out on a night like this? I am breaking in some new overshoes for a friend, Mrs. McGee. Here's the... Oh, excuse me, am I intruding? Oh, no more than usual, Siggy. <laughs> you know Alice Darling, I think. Hello, Mr. Wellington. Good evening. And may I say that I prefer the way she is listed on our bank night records at the Bijou Theater as Darling Miss? Mm. <laughs> oh, I'll go pile up some dead leaves, you old rake. McGee, <laughs> now, don't be so rude. By the way, Mr. Wellington, uh, this is Mr. Taylor, a friend of Miss Darling. Mm, hello, lad. Mm, hello. <laughs> What can we do for you, Mr. Wellington? I just came in to see if by any chance McGee could spare, for a brief time, of course, the umbrella he borrowed from me in 1936. <laughs> Not that I wish to appear to be snatching it back, you understand. My gosh, Sig, that umbrella was worn out and threw away long ago. Including, I suppose, the 14-carat gold handle? No, no, McGee had that made into a walking stick the time he sprained his ankle. Yeah. Be glad to loan you that, Wellington, but it wouldn't be much help in the rain, except to see how deep the puddles were. Yes. <laughs> well, just an inquiry, you know. Charge it off to mere morbid curiosity, if you wish. Yeah, we wish. <laughs> <laughs> Won't you sit down a while, Mr. Wellington? Thank you, no. I have been sitting down all afternoon. Oh, office work? Roller skating. Mm. Well, good evening, Pam. <laughs> Isn't he nice? Yeah, he's okay, but too collegiate, if you ask me. He's always telling... Hey, you kids, don't do that. What are they doing, McGee? All huddled up together like that on the Davenport. My gosh, you don't have to sit so close together. There's plenty of chairs. <laughs> here, Bert, you sit over here by the desk. That's it. Alice, how about a nice sofa cushion on the floor? Ah, that's better. <laughs> There's room for everybody. Has it occurred to you, dearie, that Alice and Bert might want a minute or two alone together? Oh, gee, I was hoping... A minute or two alone, my clavicle. What they need on a night like this is people around them. Laughter, fun, gaiety. Has anybody got a rubber band? <laughs> wow, what a night. Hello, folks. I just thought I... Oh, excuse me. I didn't know you had company tonight. Well, you know Alice, Mr. Wilcox. Hello, Mr. Wilcox. Hello, Alice. And this is Bert Taylor, Jr. Hi, Howdy Bert. Too. He's Alice's swain who stayed in tonight because it's swaining. <laughs> you get it, kids? Swain, swaining? The humor's derived from the fact that play on words Ain't is part funny, of... McGee. <laughs> I thought it was rather excruciating in a sad sort of way. What on earth are you doing out on a night like this, Mr. Wilcox? Well, I usually bring my dog out for a walk about this time every night, but I wouldn't bring a dog out on a night like this. So I came alone. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> I saw your light, and I thought I'd drop in. Drip would be a better word, Mr. Wilcox. <laughs> Take off that wet coat. No, thanks, Molly. I've got to run along. I'll bet the real reason you're walking, Junior, is you don't want to get that new car of yours all rained on. Have you got a new car, Mr. Wilcox? Well, no, no, I haven't. What on earth gave you the idea that... Oh, <laughs> oh, I know. He knows. <laughs> Why use some Johnson's car new on it this afternoon? It just looks new. Well, put some gum on my chair and call me Wrigley. <laughs> I gave him an opening. He could drive Eugene Pallet through. <laughs> uh, what's Johnson's car new, Mr. Wilcox? It's Ooh. an automobile polish, isn't it, Mr. Wilcox? An automobile polish. 
Now, it's the automobile polish for car owners who want an easy-to-use, fast method of beautifying their cars. Cleans and polishes in one easy application. People who have cars really have to nurse them along nowadays, don't they, Mr. Wilcox? They sure do, Molly. That's why car new is such a blessing. It's so fast and does such a thorough job. You just apply it, let it dry, and wipe it off, and presto. The gleam of your dreams. Well, how do you spell car new, Mr. Wilcox? Stooge. <laughs> it's spelled C-A-R-N-U, Johnson's Car New. Do you have to be going, Mr. Wilcox? Yes, Molly, I really do. I've got to meet a woman at Kramer's Drugstore. Uh-oh, what'll your wife say? She'll say hello. Oh. Good night, Mal. <laughs> Nice guy. Uh, who is he? Well, uh, he represents the Johnson Wax people, Mr. Taylor. He drops in on us almost every Tuesday night. Yeah. On a sort of an or-else basis. <laughs> hey, hasn't anybody got a rubber band? I'd sure like to show you kids this car trick. It's pretty baffling. Hey, Molly, isn't there a rubber band in the desk? That desk is so full of stamps, nobody could find anything in it. Hmm? Oh, you uh, collect stamps, Mr. McGee? No, I don't, Bert. When he heard that the airmail rate was going from six cents to eight cents... He went all around town like a whirlwind buying up all the six-cent stamps. <laughs> but uh, at that, it was more intelligent than most of his investments. Oh, yeah. Well, I caught the spy, didn't I? Uh, Mr. McGee. Huh? Will you show us your photograph album again, please? Oh, gee, Al, he's shown it to us twice. Well, there's nothing as fascinating as a bunch of home-took photographs. Here you are, kids. Let's see the ones on page 17. What's on page 17? Oh, oh yes, those are the ones of McGee and me in the canoe. Mm -hmm. Just you two alone together. Isn't that wonderful, Bert? Oh, boy, wouldn't it be, though? (sighs) There's nothing like getting away from people when you're young and in love, is there, Molly? No, there isn't. So let's go upstairs and read and leave Alice and Bert. Hey, I got a better idea. How about making some fudge? Oh, fudge. I mean, oh, fudge. (laughs) Gee, that's a peach of an idea, Mr. McGee. That's super. Come on, Bert, let's you and I go out in the kitchen and make fudge. Oh, swell. When you get it done, bring us some. What do you mean, when they get it done? We'll all go out and make fudge. (laughs) Many hands make light work, you know. Come on, everybody, let's all go out. Hey. I hear somebody out in the kitchen? I thought I heard something out there, too. Uh-oh. Who's in the kitchen? Just me, ma'am, Beulah. <laughs> we, we thought you'd gone home long ago, Beulah. No, sir, I started to go, and then it begun to rain real hard, and I thought I'd better wait a while on account of my routine. <laughs> County or what? Oh, kind of my room of tears. Tears them, Beulah. Oh, yes, it is, ma'am. They your <laughs> See, my doctor says genuine room of tears, and he's one of the finest dying asterisms in this town. <laughs> you mean you've just been sitting in the kitchen waiting for the rain to stop, Beulah? Yes, but I've been listening to the radio out there, Miss Alice. Oh, those Burns and Allen, they're the cutest people. <laughs> hey, Beulah, you got a rubber band? I got a great card trick if I could only find a rubber band. You got a rubber band? No, so all I got is a long piece of elastic. Oh, swell. Let me take it. I'll cut it. I'll cut off a short length. I'm sorry, sir. Hmm? Nobody ain't gonna cut nothing off this piece of elastic. <laughs> <laughs> you see, where I got it, I need every inch of it, including the stretch. <laughs> oh. Well, looks like 
think you kids are going to have to wait till after the war to see this card trick. Oh, I'm sorry. I love card tricks. Can anybody tell fortunes? I can't. For me either. I used to tell fortunes in coffee ground, Miss McGee. Well, don't you still do it, Viola? No, sir. Coffee grounds are so much alike, they make everybody's life too monotonous. <laughs> you better take up tea leaves, Viola. Grab an orange pico into the future. Grab an orange pico into the future to make a bit look at you. <laughs> Love that man. <laughs> Sing the Enchilada Man. I know a quaint little guy with an eye for business. He's not the peanutty man. This little guy has a cry that will wake the dead. He's not the popcorny man. He has a cart with an article so delicious. He's not the donutty man. He's wearing a smile. He's barrels of fun. There couldn't be two. There could only be Come along, here is his little song. Buy an enchilada. Nothing on his feet, patches on his seat. Try an enchilada. It's a silly whim patronizing him. But you really got her. Who's the man in question spreading indigestion? He's the enchilada man. He ought to be in the opera with his enchilada. Enchilada da da da. He's much too good for the opera. Glad you bought one. He's the man in question spreading indigestion. He's the enchilada I could find a rubber band. You'd love this card trick I do. I picked it up from a magician when I was in vaudeville. Did I happen to mention I was in vaudeville once, Bert? Uh, no, I guess that's one thing you didn't mention. Hmm. I think we better be getting upstairs, McGee. Hmm? Alice and Bert may want to talk. Oh, thank you, Mrs. McGee. You're what very... do you mean they want to talk? Didn't you just hear Bert ask me about the time I was in vaudeville? No. Don't you want to hear about the time I was in vaudeville, Bert? Well, I, uh... <laughs> Why, certainly. One of the most interesting periods of the American theater. Well, sir, a guy and I by the name of Fred Nittany had a subordinate act that really stood out. Yeah, stood outside of agents' offices every day but Sundays. <laughs> well, we were ahead of our time is all. You see, Bert, me and Fred had an act of fast patter songs and dances. Fred had entered on the vamp with a buck and wing through the center door fancy, see? Huh? Ah, saved from a life of vaudeville. This may not be the palace, but it's home. Come in. 
Is this the residence of Mr. and Mrs. Fibber McGee? <laughs> yes, it is, Bud. What can we do for you? Well, I hope I'm not intruding on your privacy. I am Mr. Richards. Robert Richards. Oh, well, how do you do, I'm sure. And this is Miss Darling and Mr. Taylor, Mr. Richards. Uh, how do you do? How are you, Mr. Richards? I'm really pleased to meet you. But the name isn't Richards, Mrs. McGee. It's Richards. <laughs> you know, I said, Richard, the wine-hearted... Oh, Richards. Oh, I get it. Wobbert Richards. Oh, not Wobbert. Hmm? Wobbert. <laughs> you know, it's like Wobbert Louis Stevenson. Oh, oh, sure, of course, Robert Richards. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> What's on your mind, Mr. Richards? Well, I live in the house across the street, and I thought I'd stop in and report that you left your lawnmower on the lawn in the wane and it's getting all rusty. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. McGee, run out and put the lawnmower in the garage. What do you mean, run out? In this weather? That isn't my lawnmower anyway. I just borrowed it from Doc Gamble. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it's getting awfully rusty. Well, thank you for telling us, Mr. Richards. Say, are you the people who just moved in a few days ago? Yes, ma'am. We moved here from Grand Rapids. <laughs> I work in the airplane plant. <laughs> So do I, Mr. Richards. Maybe I can ride out there with you in your car. Oh, I'd be delighted, Miss Darling. <laughs> Don't be delighted. <laughs> what do you do at the airplane plant, Mr. Richards? I'm a draftsman. Oh. I make blueprints. <laughs> May I ask, what do you do for a living, Mr. McGee? <clears throat> I was afraid somebody was going to ask me that sometime. Well, he's connected with the Johnson Wax people, Mr. Richards. Won't you sit down till the weather clears a little? Oh. Thank you. I don't believe I can, Mrs. McGee. I just went over to tell you about the lawnmower. Good night. <laughs> well, he seems like a nice little man, doesn't he? Yeah, very neighborly. Glad to know about that lawnmower, too. I'll run out in the morning and throw a canvas over it, too. <laughs> what good lad do? It'll be all rusty by that time. Well, I know, but if Doc Gamble comes by and sees it, it won't hurt his feelings. He's very sensitive about that lawnmower. Hey, what are you yawning about? Well, I'd say it was because I'm sleepy. Hmm? You'd better go to bed, too. Remember, you're painting the porch swing tomorrow. Well, my gosh, here we invited these kids to stay, and if we go to bed, who'll entertain them? Oh, don't you worry about us, Mr. McGee. Oh, we'll be all right. I, I can't stay much longer anyway. You're sure? Of course they're sure, McGee. Now, come along. Uh, hey, wait a minute. I never finished telling Bert about my vaudeville act. You see, Bert... McGee. Hmm? Come on. Oh, okay. <clears throat> well, good night, kids. If you want something to read, help yourself to either of the books in the bookcase. Uh, thank you, Mr. McGee. Good night. Good night. Good night, Mr. Taylor. No, no, don't get up. Uh, good night. Uh, good night, kids. Gee whiz, Molly, I feel like a dog running out on them like this. They'll be bored to Oh, boy. Oh, turn off the light, Bert, and let's just sit here by the fire. Oh, that'll be swell, Alice. They're nice, aren't they, Bert? Well, she's swell, but he's a gabby old clunk. <laughs> Oh, well, it's okay now. Gee, your hair smells nice. Oh, I'm glad you think so, Bert. And, Bert, hmm? please don't squeeze my hand so hard. If I had a ring on one of these fingers, it would really hurt with you squeezing like that. Oh, uh, uh, speaking of rings, Alice, I, uh... Well, I, uh, uh, Yes, Bert? I, uh... Well, I was wondering if you... Well, uh, <gasps> Hey, I got it. I got it. McGee, come back here. Hey, 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 kids, look, look, look what I found. 
A rubber band. <laughs> now, I'll show you a card trick that'll make your eyes pop. Oh, brother. Okay, Bert, pick out a card. Go on, go on. Any card, honey, any card. I'll take the deck and pick out a card. Pick out a card. like to talk to you for a moment about your automobile. If you've taken a good look at it lately, you realize it's not getting any younger. You probably get a little tired of hearing so many people tell you to take good care of that car. But after all, both from a patriotic and a selfish point of view, it's still the thing to do, isn't it? That's probably reason number one for getting some Johnson's Car New that cleans and polishes in one application after that dull-looking finish. Or maybe with you, the number one reason is the looks of your car and the greater pleasure you get out of it when the finish shines like a mirror. With Johnson's Car New, you can't make over the motor or put on new tires, but believe me, you can restore the beauty of your car's finish. And you can do it with so little work that cleaning and polishing a car with Car New is just as easy for a woman as for a man. Johnson's Car New is a liquid. It dries to a white powder, and off comes the dullness when you wipe off the powder. Now is a very good time to give the finish of your car a spring cleaning with Johnson's Car New, spelled C-A-R-N-U. Uh-huh. Well, McGee, you used very bad judgment tonight. What do you mean? Don't you realize that two young people like that want to be alone with each other? Ah. Uh, they don't want middle-aged people like us cramping their style. Ah, oh, they were having a wonderful time. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Bert signal to Alice that he was getting an awful bang out of me. How did he signal? He jerked his left thumb at me while pretending to shoot himself in the right temple. Ah, well, go to sleep, dear. Okay, good night. Good night, all. The character of Mr. Wellington heard on this program was played by Ransom Chairman. This is Harlow Wilson, speaking for the makers of Johnson's Lights for Home and Industry, and inviting you all to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Man, they were good, weren't they? Fibber McGee and Molly from 1944, May the 9th. That was Alice Darling's new boyfriend. They were really good at timing. Of course, they worked together for years, but boy, as a team, they were just tremendous. Jim and Marion Jordan, Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Of course, many of our compatriots out there in California knew, uh, at least knew Jim Jordan personally, had opportunity many times to talk with him and hear him tell stories. They, They were a very big deal, by the way. I mean, they had an audience of millions and millions of people, much larger than television audiences. Today, the radio was very powerful medium in 1944. All right, back to Bobby Darren. I promised you that I would play you the second most popular tune of that year, which was a Bobby Darren tune. And you've already guessed what it is. And it's from the Three Penny Opera. And here is Mac the Knife. The shark bait has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife 
has old Maggie Heat, baby And it keeps it uh, out of sight You know when that shark bites With his teeth, baby Scarlet billows start to spread Fancy gloves, though, where's old Maggie Heat, babe? So there's never, never a trace of red. Now on the sidewalk, uh-huh, ooh, Sunday morning, uh-huh, lies a body just oozing life. And someone sneaking round the corner. Could that someone be Mac the Knife? There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just drooping on down. Oh, that cement is just, it's there for the way to dare. Five will get you ten old Mackies back in town. Now you hear about Louis Miller He disappeared, babe After drawing out All his hard-earned cash And now Maggie Heath spins Just like a shell Could it be our boy's done something rash song's not exactly the three bells either, is it? A little, little jaundice there. Suki Tawdry and Lottie Linya and old Lucy Brown and Mac the Knife tying people up in cement bags and dumping them and... Ooh. Well, anyway, that was a big, big hit for Bobby Darren, one of his biggest, and that was one of the songs we were listening to in 59. In fact, that was the second largest selling song in 1959. What was the largest? Well, this one is a little lighter, thank you. And this was a big, big hit for Johnny Hort. Jackson down to mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans. We fired our guns and the British kept a coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run it on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. 
We look down the river and we see the British come And there must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum They stepped so high and they made the bugles ring We stood beside our cotton bales and didn't say a thing We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico Old Hickory said we could take them by surprise If we didn't fire muskets till we looked them in the eye We held our fire till we see their faces well Then we opened up our squirrel guns and really gave them well We fired our guns and the British kept them coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico And they ran through the bushes where a rabbit couldn't go They ran so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico We fired our cannon till the barrel melted down So we grabbed an alligator and we fought another round We filled his head with cannonballs and powdered his behind And when we touched the powder off the gator lost his mind We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico And they ran through the bushes where a rabbit couldn't go They ran so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico in that music. Yeah, you know the music. That's the music of Gunsmoke. Time for us to travel back to the 1870s to Dodge City, Kansas and buddy up with Marshal Matt Dillon. We're going to visit with Chester Proudfoot and Kitty and Doc and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. And 
And tonight we have an episode that was originally broadcast on CBS on the 12th of May in 1957. This one is entitled Sheepdog. Here it comes. Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Barkus over there, Mr. Dillon? No, that's his paw. Now, he probably knows where the boy is, though. Hey, let's wait here till he gets those sheep clear of the brush and out onto the grass. Look at that blame dog go, Mr. Dillon. Why, he's doing more handling of them sheep than old Jeb is. Now, he's taking good care of them, all right. Now, let's go talk to Jeb. Sure do wish we didn't have to, Mr. Dillon. Ah, so do I, but we don't have much choice. No, sir. We sure don't. But ain't it too bad, though? He's such a nice old fella. Yeah, Jeb's all right. Miss Barkers is a fine lady, too. Chester, I like the family, too, and I'm just as sorry about this as you are. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. Howdy there, Marshal. Kind of far piece off the beaten path now, ain't you? Yeah, I guess so, Jeb. How are you? Fit, hale, and ready for any plague that heaven wants to send. Morning, Chester. Morning, Mr. Barkers. How do you like that flock of sheep, Marshal? That looks like they wintered all right, doesn't it? Yeah, wintered fine. Mighty hungry right now, though. I reckon they'll be eating their heads off the next few days. If you ask me, they've already started to. Well, I've been holding them back there in the brush for a week and a half till this grass dried off. Put them on when it's muddy and they just tromp it down without eating more than half of it. Sheep's got no sense at all. I guess not. Well, that dog of yours has sure got plenty of sense. He's about as close to humans as i ever seen. Maybe better than some, Chester. 
That dog would fight a cougar or a wolf pack till it killed him before he'd let him cut a single sheep out of the flock. He always takes care of his own. It's born in him. Sheep dogs like that. Well. Uh, Jeb, is your boy all enough here with him? He might be down around the house. And always stop by there. Well, I don't know. I left before sunup this morning. Your wife said Arlen didn't come home last night, <laughs> Now, Marshal, you know how young folks are. Yeah, sure I know. Arlen's been kind of restless lately. Growing pains, I reckon. Wants to stay around Dodge and work cattle this summer instead of going along when we take the sheep out onto the prairie. Yeah, he'll settle down after a while. You know where I might find him, Jim? Well, he ought to be home any time now. Ordinarily, he ain't wanted, well, uh, you know, wanted to stay out all night. Tell me, Marshal, is this something official? Yeah, I'm sorry, Jeb. It's trouble with the law. Well, Arlen ain't never been in no trouble. Not real trouble. Well, he is now. He was in town last night, Jeb. Till near morning, there was an argument over a poker game, and he shot Will Peterson. No. Did he, did he kill him, Marshal? Will was still alive when we left her right out here. Well, I don't hold none with gunfighting, but if Will Peterson drawed on my boy, he had a right to defend himself. Will wasn't wearing a gun. I don't believe it. Somebody's lying. That may be, but that's something the jury's going to have to decide. If thine own offend, deliver them not under Canaan, but judge ye the false thereof in thine own tents. The law doesn't look at it that way, Jeb. Harlan's one of my flock, Marshal. I'm sorry, but i got to take Arlen in for trial. And the best advice you can tell him is to give himself up. Marshal, I'll have to think about that and talk to him before I decide. All right, you do that, Jim. But before you make any move, you'll regret just remember one thing. You're not a sheepdog, Jeb, and the law's not a wolf pack. Arlen is charged with attempted murder. And he's going to stand trial. It's me, Matthew. Oh, how are you, Miles? Um, have you been up to Doc's office? Yeah, I was just coming from there. Is uh, Will Peterson... He's still alive, Miles. Uh, Doc's doing all he can for him. Oh, it's a terrible thing, Matthew. Will's a fine man, hard-working, wife and family. Yeah, I know. That's pretty tough on Jeb Barkas, too. He just couldn't believe a son of his would shoot a man down the way Orland did. Miles, you were there last night, I mean, at the poker game, weren't oh, you? Oh, I, I was. Tell me, was there any excuse at all for what the boy did? Will accused Arlen of cheating with the cards, which she was doing, as well as all of us with a liquor sense knew he was. And the lad knew that we knew. Perhaps that's what made him so mad. Well, he's always been pretty touchy. Well, before one of us knew what he was up to, he hauled out his gun and shot Will twice. And then he ran out of the place, hollering he'd kill any one of us that came after him. If Will dies, that's cold-blooded murder, Matthew. Nothing else but... That sure sounds like it. Well, I'll... Uh... Hey, Matthew, I, I, I think there's something that you ought to know. Oh, what? There's a, a talk around town that's been getting louder all day. Now, what kind of talk? 
Well, some of them are saying that you're not making any effort to find that boy and bring him in. And any of them think they could do a better job? It might be they're aiming to try, Matthew. Yeah, I see. Who's talking the loudest, Miles? Well, Riff Kelso mostly, I reckon. Yeah, sure. Riff always gets real law-abiding when he thinks there's a chance of making it mob law. Aye. Well, I, I thought maybe you ought to know about it. I'm not much obliged to you, Miles. Aye. Riff gets a bunch of drunken loafers around him. There's no telling what he might do. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? Old Jeb Barker's over at Long Branch. Oh? He slipped in the back way, says he wants to see you. Oh, good. Uh, Miles, let me know if anything serious gets started, will you? Oh, I surely will, Matthew. Is he by himself, Chester? Well, I don't know for sure. He won't say nothing till he sees you. Well, I hope he's brought the boy in. It'd be better all the way around if he has. Well, you know, Orlin even went home, Mr. Dillon. Maybe he just hit the trail out of town. Now, I'm betting different, Chester. Orlin's not trail-wise. He's never been away from home in his life. He'd need a bedroll and grub and money. He'd run out on that poker game without even picking up his winnings. Hello, Matt. Chester. Kitty. Kitty. Kitty, is Jeb Barker still here? Um, Yeah, back there in the corner below the stairway. Oh, good. Uh, Matt, have you caught the boy yet? No, not yet. What's it all about? I'm not sure, Kitty. I'll talk to Jeb. Is Will Peterson still alive? Yeah, so far he is. You know, there's a lot of talk around here. Yeah, I know. Miles McTaggart's just telling me. That talk never moved any mountains, Kitty. Yeah, it's moved mobs, though. Suppose Will dies, Matt. Uh, Kitty, a man would go crazy on this job if he went around supposing things. Just the same, it could mean trouble. Forget it. Well, I'm going over there and talk to Jeb. All right, Matt. Evening, Jeb. I figured I ought to come and tell you, Marshal. It was the only just thing to do. Have you seen Orlin? Yeah, I've seen him. Where is he? Marshal, we've been friends for a long time, you and me. I got all the respect in the world for you. But I reckon this time we're on opposite sides of the fence. Well? Orlin ain't guilty. He told me all about it. There were three of them jumped him just because he was winning. And all three of them was armed. He had to kill in self-defense. The others tell it in a different way, Joe. It's lies they made up among themselves. Execute justice and righteousness in the land, the book says. But they won't. They're out to hang him. I heard the talk around town tonight. Judge Benson, honest man, Jeb, and you know that. Orland will get a fair trial. I'm sorry, Marshal. He ain't going to trial. All right, Jeb. I've been laying back giving you a chance because I figured it'd be better that way, but I can't do it any longer. You're making the biggest mistake of your life, Jeb. Now, you just think about it. Any better at all? No. Yeah, it's a thankless job, Matt Doctrine. No matter what you do, people are going to die anyway sooner or later. But a lot of times you can try to make it later. Yeah. 
Hey, want some coffee, Matt? Yeah, I guess so. You know, it'd be a lucky thing for old Jeb and the boy if Will does manage to pull through. Confounded, Matt, part of it's old Jeb's fault. He's rode too close herd on that young one. Oh, thanks. You never give him a chance to grow up. Yeah, maybe you're right. Matt, people are going to go right on committing crimes and dying, no matter what you and I try to do about it. So why don't we just give up? I don't know, Doc. Why don't we? Maybe I should just stick to my coroner's job and forget the rest. Yeah, then all I have to do is tell if somebody's dead or not. Uh, Mr. John? Yeah, Chester. Riff Kelso's coming down the street. Got a mob of drunks with him. He has, huh? <laughs> Doc, I'll see you later. I'm going to arrest Arlen and jail him on an assault charge before they really start something. Oh, Matt. Huh? Wait. Yeah. Will is dead. And I'll bring Arlen in for murder. Quite a bunch with him. Yeah, they're bar flies mostly and drifters going along for this show. Keep your eye on Mike Ellery and Red Stoddard. I'll handle Riff Kelso. The rest of them don't count. All right, Chief. You boys got something in mind? you got, Marshal. The way things look. I suppose you told me about it, Riff. Dang right we'll tell you about it. We're all friends of Will Peterson's, Marshal. We aim to see justice done. That's fine. So do I. Well, then why ain't you done nothing about it? You had since last night to find that kid and bring him in. What are you trying to do? Let him get clear out of the country? He hasn't gone any place. How do you know where he's gone? You sure ain't spent no time out looking for him, and all the while Will laying up there dying. You're wrong, Riff. Will's already dead. Dead? You hear that, boys? Will's already dead. That murdering little rat shot Will down in cold blood, and the marshal ain't even bothered to go after him. At least not till now. Now that he's given that murderer plenty of time to get away. You've got any reason figured out why I'd do that? You're dang right I got a reason. Everybody in town knows you and Jeb's been friends for years. What I say is, if there's going to be law, there's going to be law for everybody. And that goes for the marshal's friends, too. Well, I'm glad to see you've changed your way of thinking, Riff. So you and your boys are out to enforce the law tonight, is that it? You're dang right, that's it. We got the rope along to enforce it with if you ain't mad enough to do your duty, then we're going to do it for you. All right, Riff, shut up and listen. All right, so you two, shut up! Because this is the last one and you're going to get. While I've been marshal here, nobody's ever been strung up by a mob. And as long as I go on being marshal, nobody's ever going to be. 
Now, is that clear? You're bucking a pretty good-sized crowd here, ain't you? Not as big as the law, Riff. Might be we're aiming to change the law some, Marshal. And the lawman right along with it. Anybody who wants to apply for the job is welcome to put in his bid any time. How about right now? That's not the way to apply, Riff. Not with a gun. Now, are there any other candidates? All right, then a couple of you carry him upstairs and get Doc to patch him up. He's not hurt bad. And the rest of you, get on about your business. Now, go on, move. All right, Chester. Let's go bring in Orland. Much sign of life around, Mr. Dillon. And there must be somebody here. House is all dark. Yeah. Oh, watch yourself, Joseph. No telling what a crazy kid will do. Yes, sir. Maybe old Jeb took the whole family and run for it. No, there's a horse and wagon tied by the barn there. Well, well, well I don't reckon they'd go off and leave a horse standing hitched, would they? Matt Dillon, Chad. Are you alone? I'm alone, Marshal. Come on up. Jeb, I can't make it easy on you any longer. Will Peterson died a little while ago. I reckon I already know it, Marshal. Somehow I just kind of felt it. The charge is murder now, Jeb. I've come for Orland. Yeah, I know. Orland come running home, Marshal, scared half to death. Just like he'd always done when he was a little shaver. Begged me to help him, and I listened to him and believed him. He was lying, Jeb. I was going to hide him, help him get away. Man, no places to hide. Jeb, where is he? Marshal, you told me that it was a lot more than just a wolf pack after the flock. You told me I was making the biggest mistake of my life. Jeb. Now, wait a minute. When I come back out from town tonight, Arlen was fixing to leave on his own. He broke into the box where we keep our savings. Pretty near $300. And he hit his maw when she tried to stop him. Hurt her pretty bad. Where'd he go, Jeb? I found him out in the barn, Marshal, saddling his horse. He had some food and my rifle that he was aiming to take along. I argued with him, and he laughed, and he said, Sure, Will Peterson wasn't wearing no gun. I grabbed the rifle away from him, and he knocked me down. Then he drawed his gun and aimed it at me. Aimed his gun at his own father. Jeb, you're going to have to tell me where is he. I was just fixing to drive into town, Marshal. Orland's there in the back of the wagon. I shot him dead. Hey, 
Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The script was specially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield, with editorial supervision by John Meston. The music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns were by Ray Kemper and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Parley Bear as Chester, Howard McNear as Doc, and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. George Walsh speaking. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Fifty-seven. That was Gunsmoke, and the name of that episode was Sheepdog. Well, everybody, that's just about it for this week. We are going to take all of our shows and put them back in the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. All right, everybody, that's it for this time. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again. We'll have uh, some type of uh, old radio noir. We'll have a comedy corner. We'll end up with an episode of Gunsmoke, and maybe we'll tell some stories and play some music along the way. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me. We're going to go out with one more song from 1959.
like Johnny B. Good. Hot legs. Showing off. Ah, number one. Did I practice all day and up into the night? My papa's hair was turning white. Cause he didn't like rocking the road. He said, you can stay, boy, but that's gotta go. He's a sweat. Just didn't dig me at all. So I took my guitar, picks and all, bid farewell to my old ball. Split for Memphis, where they say you all am swinging cats or having a ball session. Hot licks and all. They dig me. said that I had what it takes. When up stepped a man with a big cigar, he said, come here, cat, I'm gonna make you a star. I put you on bandstand, buy you a Cadillac, sign here, kid. I signed my name and became a star, having a ball with my guitar, driving a big long Cadillac, fighting the girls. All from the back They just kept coming Screaming Yeah, they like it So I picked my guitar With a great big grin And the money just kept on Pouring in But then one day my uncle Sam He said Here I am Uncle Sam needs you, boy I'm uh, going to cut your hair off. Uh, they did rival, kid. Give me that guitar. 